Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Good morning. How beautiful is the rain? Unless you're trying to get a harvest done. Um, Welcome to 8.30. So, if you haven't been in 8.30 service for a while, for the last month or so, we've been working through... Thank you. Isn't he strong? I'm allowed to say that because he's my husband. But he is. So for the last month or so, we've been taking a deep dive into the book of Genesis. We are today up to Genesis chapters 16 through to 18. Now, in this part of Genesis, we're actually getting to some of the really foundational elements of who the Israelites will become as a nation. There's a lot of events that are going to happen in these three small chapters, so rather than spending the next 15 minutes just reading it out to you and done and dusted, I'm just going to summarise the key events that we're looking over today. So the first is the events surrounding Hagar and Ishmael. So Abraham has been promised that he is going to have descendants, but at this point he's an old man, his wife is not only barren but postmenopausal, so logistically that's going to be difficult, right? So... Abraham's wife, Sarah, suggests that according to local custom at the time, Abraham might have a child with her slave, Hagar. Um, They have this child, they have a son called Ishmael, and understandably there's quite a lot of tension between Hagar and Sarah over this. The second thing that happens is God reappears to Abraham and reaffirms the covenant that he had already made. God also, for the first time now, requires circumcision to be a sign of this covenant. And the third thing that happens is a bit of a strange event where three men visit Abraham and they're presumed to be a theophany or God appearing to Abraham. It's not clear whether it's God in three parts or God and some angels, but nevertheless, God appears to Abraham and again reaffirms that it's actually Sarah who is going to be part of the covenant and it's Sarah who is going to give birth to the heir of the covenant even though she's barren postmenopausal. But before we unpack this further, I want to actually rewind a little bit and go back and see how far we've come. So Genesis literally means the beginning of things. It's presumed to be written mostly by Moses. Genesis is actually pretty poetic in how it's written. It's telling a story. It's about the formation of humanity, the foundation of God's people, and a people who were called to be set apart and live by a higher calling. But it's a people who don't always get it right. And as much as Genesis tells the story of the foundations of God's people, Genesis is a book that details God's instruction and directive on how we should live according to his call. It's about the birth of the world first, the birth of humanity next, and then the birth of God's people. And you could almost say that the portion of Genesis up until now, the portion before Abraham, is somewhat like the prologue or the introduction. And what we see is that humanity develops, and as it develops, so does its propensity for sin and for evil. You know, we had the fall, we had the first murder, we had the flood, we had the Tower of Babel, and during this time we're also going to see Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. We have this world that's been created to be beautiful, yet is so bent on sin and evil. And God then charges this one family with the task of leading a holy life and setting an example to the rest of the world. And this is the foundation of the Israelites who will then become God's people, God's nation, who show the world how God would have them live. It's a nation of a people who are called to be set apart. And it all begins with Abraham. You know, as we read through the story of Abraham, we don't want it to be just an academic reading, but we actually want to say that the call that God put on Abraham is the call that he puts on each and every one of us. We live in a culture that's increasingly permissive, increasingly heading towards evil things. And we as Christians are called to live a life that is set apart from those around us, just like Abraham was. So on this backdrop enters Abram and Sarai. Abram, who is the traditional or the original name of Abraham, was called to leave his homeland, leave his people and leave his father's house and set up a new life set apart from his culture. 
As part of this, God gives them new names, Abraham and Sarah. This new naming of them symbolizes that they're given a totally new identity. So God actually calls Abraham at the tender old age of 75, and he's called to leave his homeland at that point. It's actually quite some years later that God actually first creates his covenant with Abraham, which Pastor Bron shared with us from Genesis 15 last week. And in our scriptures today, Abraham's actually 99 years old by this stage. He's been waiting on God for over 20 years. He's had just three documented revelations of God in this time. Yet he still holds faithful. He's still waiting for the son, and he's been waiting 20 years. Abraham's covenant isn't realized rapidly. It is a long and slow road. So God's covenant with Abraham, or the Abrahamic covenant, covers three main themes, none of which are answered straight away. The first is children. God promises Abraham repeatedly, again and again and again, that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. This seems like an impossibility, but God repeats it again and again to Abraham. The second, God promises Abraham seven times that he'll have a land of his own. And more than five times, God promises Abraham that he will be an influence on humanity and that all of the peoples of the world will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. And who can see that that, that's actually come to be true? Abraham waits years and years to see the promises of God realized. And it's in this waiting that Abraham's faith is tested and tested again until it's finally proved. You know, Abraham makes a lot of mistakes along the way, but he does set an amazing example of faith. Now, in that time, people had oral tradition handed down. Poor old Abraham, he didn't have the written word of God given to him. Yet he somehow seems to know what is later going to be written in the Bible. That in Psalm 66, it says, you God tested us. You refined us like silver. We went through fire and water, but we came to a place of abundance. And again, in Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. So Abraham never saw that written down, but he knew it to be true. How much can we as Christians in our day and age learn from Abraham's example? You know, I for one know that I often struggle with waiting on God's timing, and I often, I'm a misfixit, I like to, Mrs. Fixit, sorry, I like to go and sort of sort things out myself. So this is where we've come from, now let's go with where we're up to now. So the call of Abraham is thought to have happened around 1926 BC, and it's a pretty pivotal moment in biblical history. Abraham came from this place, Ur, before moving with his father's family to Haran. And it's from Haran that he's then called to leave and set up his own life according to God's purpose. Now, the country of Ur would be what we would call Iraq today. But in this time, this area is called Mesopotamia. Now, Mesopotamian people were polytheistic. They believed in lots of gods. But unlike our God, they believed that these gods were impersonal. They had nothing to do with humans. They didn't really care about humans. So prior to his calling, we could assume that according to his culture, Abraham was probably also polytheistic. And this is what this, this polytheism or this historic faith is what he's being asked to cast aside, to leave behind, to sever completely as he steps out in his new journey with God. By, gone, by, by contrast, God reveals himself to Abraham as one God, a God who's absolute, a God who's personal, and a God who wants to relate to his people and be known by them. Abraham responds to this call of God by physically separating himself from the culture that he had known to live a life set apart in total obedience to God. For each of us, God likewise calls us to sever ties to things that are of the old. You know, God wants us to leave behind customs, culture, baggage that maybe has been handed down through generations and start afresh with him. How often do we tend to cling to those things of old, things that we should have let go of, things that continue to hold us down and stop us living a free life? Moving on, because we've got a lot to get, 
to get through today. We're finally up to Genesis 16 to 18. There's three main components in our portion of Scripture today. I'm not going to talk about them in necessarily chronological order. But the first component that I want to talk about is the covenant of circumcision, which is when God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. So God reappears to Abraham and reaffirms the covenant that he had already made. This is some 20 years after Abraham originally left Haran. And it's at this point that Abram's name is changed to Abraham, denoting his new identity. Abraham means exalted, Abraham means exalted father. Abraham means father of many, reiterating that Abraham is going to have many descendants, even though it feels like it's an impossibility. Now, it's at this time that God requires a physical response from Abraham to hold up his end of the bargain with a physical sign, the sign of circumcision. Did I just say that out loud? Now, don't get too alarmed, everybody. It's a safe space. It's not a dirty word. But circumcision in the Old Testament is a physical sign of a spiritual distinction. It's a permanent sign that reflects a permanent covenant. So all of the Israelite males were called to be circumcised as this physical manifestation of this spiritual distinction. It's the physical sign of the covenant. The Israelites, we know, are called to be set apart, to be different from the nations around them, so much so that when you look at them, they should even look different. Now, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear to us that circumcision as a physical act is not required for salvation. If so, our salvation would be based on works, not on Christ's free gift. You know, Paul says in Galatians, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. However, the underlying principle of what circumcision meant still continues as a metaphor in our lives today. So even in the Old Testament, circumcision was never just about the physical. It was about the attitude of the heart. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God says to the Israelites, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Now, this is in reference to the Israelites after they'd, you know, strayed and made a golden calf and followed local customs to produce idols. Even back then, it was about circumcision as as an act of the heart. This principle continues as a metaphor into the New Testament, into a a post-Christ world. In Romans chapter 2, it says, circumcision is not merely outward and physical. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So in our Christian faith today, circumcision becomes a metaphor. So it's symbolic that there should be some distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. And when you look at the people of God, there should be an obvious distinction. Circumcision of the heart should make us stand out. So when people look at us and observe our character, there should be a clear distinction between followers of Christ and followers of the world. And that should be really apparent to all those we come into contact with. Part two, the second message that we're talking about today is Hagar and Ishmael. So Ishmael comes about as a result of Abraham's poor choice. Now, even though what Abraham did with Hagar was standard custom in Mesopotamia, in fact, his grandson Jacob does the same thing several years later, we had just learned that Abraham was called to leave behind local custom and live according to God's will. So in this instance, Abraham follows the world's knowledge instead of God's wisdom. And Ishmael comes about as a result of Abraham trying to fix it himself instead of waiting on God. And unfortunately, millennia of conflict has come out of that poor choice. Additionally, it's actually the whole idea was Sarah's in the first place. But in this instance, Abraham fails to lead Sarah just as years before Adam had failed to lead Eve. And they both ended up falling into sin. Poor Hagar, she finds herself stuck in the wilderness twice. The first time she's pregnant and Sarah's really mistreating her out of jealousy. And so Hagar runs away and gets lost in the wilderness. And then later on after Isaac, the actual heir is finally born. Sarah is given her free- um, Hagar is given her freedom and her and Ishmael go into the wilderness and once again get lost. But on both of these occasions, an angel of the Lord appears to Hagar and says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. 
sounds a little similar to what God said to Abraham. So Abraham gives Hagar this promise, but let's not mistake it, it's not the covenant. And in a prophecy about her yet unborn son, Hagar is told that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Isn't it funny how the effect of the world is the opposite to the impact of the presence of God? So God has compassion for Hagar, but his plan regarding his covenant stays firm. Abraham again petitions God to bless his son Ishmael. So God again reiterates that his plan is through Sarah and Isaac, yet still he decides to bless Hagar and bless her offspring and make Ishmael into a great nation. So it's the blessing, but it's not the covenant. And it's amazing how there is actually surprising parallels between Isaac's descendants and Ishmael's descendants. So Ishmael's descendants will also be blessed to become a great nation. But while there are parallels and while there's blessing, they don't share the covenant that God made with Abraham and Sarah. The name Ishmael actually means God hears. Ishmael goes on to have 12 sons who will become 12 princes or tribal rulers. Isaac's son Jacob also has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So the sons of Ishmael settle in the area just east of Egypt. And it's actually this area where the Israelites wander for years after they come out of Egypt. The tribes live in hostility and they're said to have been at constant war with one another. By contrast, while the 12 tribes of Israel didn't always agree, they lived together in unity under God as one nation. In many ways, you could say that the descendants of Ishmael form a parallel to the descendants of Isaac, only they live with hostility rather than unity. So when we take God's plan, we try to fit it to our own understanding and try to make it in our own strength, it just misses the mark. And it becomes this poor, cheapened version of what God had intended. So when we sin, God is able to forgive and to redeem, but we might still have to live with the consequences. The final person I want to talk about is Sarah. Now, there's a few things we know about Sarah. She was extremely beautiful. In all of their travels, kings of countries desired her to bring her into their harem. She was also barren, which caused her intense humiliation. She's completely devoted to her husband and seeing his line prosper, even if it accentuates her own humiliation and even if she doesn't make great decisions along the way. And in fact, there's more space devoted to Sarah in the Bible than to any other woman. You really can't help but feel for Sarah as you read the accounts in Genesis. You know, she puts up with a fair bit, not once, but twice. Her own husband pretends that she is his sister to save his own skin and allows her to be used by men. She lives with the humiliation of being barren in an age where that's your most important job. She's then humiliated further when Hagar is proved not to be barren and she almost enters a stage of bitterness here where she's actually very cruel to Hagar despite it being her idea in the first place. And then as much as, as, much as it brings her joy, she's a 90-year-old woman who gives birth without an epidural and without pelvic floor physio. Can I get an amen from the ladies in the room? But despite all of this, Sarah is part of the promise of the covenant too. So just as Abraham's name is changed to Abraham, Sarai's name is changed to Sarah, really making it abundantly clear that she's part of the promise too and that the offspring of the covenant will come through her line. I'm so relieved that Sarah isn't punished for not initially believing God's plan. You know, it's her idea that Abraham could have an, have an heir through Hagar. Now, it's not clear whether she knows at this point that she's part of the covenant or not, but she's quite cruel to Hagar once this comes about. She's jealous. And even though it was custom at the time, it went against what God's plan was from the beginning of, beginning of things, that a man would leave his mother and father and be married to one wife. Yet Sarah is the only wife and one of the only women to be listed as a hero of the faith in Hebrews 11. She was at risk of becoming humiliated, cynical, envious and cruel. But God restores her and makes her the mother of nations. 
In Galatians chapter 4, Paul actually compares Hagar and Sarah. You know, Hagar is given as this metaphor of the covenant of the flesh, embodying our human attempts to control things. Sarah is given as a metaphor of the covenant of the promise. Hagar and Sarah are described as life under law versus life under grace. Slavery to legalism versus freedom in Christ. I'm going to wrap up here, but I want to end with a few thoughts. You know, when we look at the life of Abraham, it gives us a vision of what it can be like to live in the presence of God with this radically new to that time type of heroism. Most cultures from this time period have tales that have been told through oral tradition. And most of them have these heroes who are somewhat superhuman. You know, you think of Hercules. Abraham, by contrast, is totally human. He demonstrates a new kind of heroism, a faith uh, and a life of decency, a life of integrity, a life of goodness and a life of faithfulness. Everything about Abraham points to the coming of Christ in the future. I'm going to close now with a quote from Jonathan Sachs. The protagonists of Genesis are astonishingly human. A world away from the heroes and heroines of myth, they are ordinary people made extraordinary by their willingness to follow God. We're going to have a few moments to have a talk about that before we hear from Luke. Thank you. Um, But I want to start with a little bit of what um, Phoebe was talking about around the time period of the promise. Um, So it was 23 years. 23 years between when Abraham received the promise of becoming a father of many nations to being told that it'll be his and Sarah's child. So it seems like it happens shorter than that. When you read through the scripture, it happens straight after. It seems like it's almost the next day. But it was across 23 years, um, as Phoebe was pointing out. So it's 23 years of holding on to a promise without the how holding on to a promise, not knowing how this promise is going to be fulfilled. And so after 10 years, that's when they don't have the how. They don't have the answer of the how. And so after 10 years is when they decide to to try and make it happen themselves. And that's when Ishmael is born. Because they have this promise. They haven't been given the how. And they're like, well, maybe, maybe it's this way. Maybe it's not what we think it is. Maybe we'll settle and we'll try and create Ishmael and make it happen, make the promise happen in our own strength because we can make this happen this way. And then it's another 13 years after Ishmael. So I'm surprised there's not three or four Ishmaels. 13 more years of holding on to this promise and they obviously were convicted after Ishmael and the mess that followed with um, all the family mess that followed after that, they were obviously convicted to say, no, that's not the way that God's going to fulfill this promise. But it's 23 years. And then, after 23 years, they get the how. And both of them respond the exact same way. Abraham falls to the ground laughing. Falls to the ground laughing. I'm going to have a, ki- a kid. I'm 99. So we'll be 100 when we have a child. When, when Sarah hears the, the messages talking about it, she laughs in the tent. And I love that it's included. I don't know why it is, but they caught her out and said, hey, are you laughing? And she goes, no, I'm not laughing. And they said, yes, you were laughing. I don't know why it's in there. It's a bit random. But they're both laughing. Both their response from this is to laugh. So the first thing I think we can take away is what I've learned about the laughable how is it gives God's glory. And that's how he likes to show up. Uh, in, in two chronicles, Chapter 20, verse 11 to 30, um, there's a laughable how. There's King Jehoshaphat, and he's surrounded by all of these armies. There's a whole, all the surrounding nations have all rallied against him to take him out. 
but he had a promise that God was going to give him victory and, and that, that their, their territory wouldn't be claimed and they would have victory. And so he has a question. He's sitting there and he's, he, he prays. He's like, God, we're surrounded. We're surrounded by armies. You said that we're going to have victory. Where are you? What's going on? And God shows up and God says, all right, Jehoshaphat, just get ready, rock up, and just watch me do my thing. So they get ready. The next day they come out for battle. All the armies are surrounding them. They're way outnumbered, impossible to win. And all the other armies turn on each other and kill each other. And they don't even fight. They stand there and all these armies kill each other. Not only did they kill each other, then it took three days for King Jehoshaphat and his armies to collect the loot. They just got to collect loot. and It took them three days to collect it. The laughable how is what gives God glory. But it's okay to have questions. I love that King Jehoshaphat had questions. Abraham and Sarah had questions. Even Jesus. Jesus was with the Father. The Son was with the Father when the earth was formed. So Jesus was with God when the earth was formed. So the hill that Jesus was put on a cross on, Jesus was there when it was formed. And I say that to say when Jesus was on the cross, on the hill, that he was present when it was formed, he had a question. He said, where are you, God? Why, why have you forsaken me? But it doesn't end there. His question was turned into faith. His, his question of where are you turned into, oh God, please forgive him. It turned into grace, hope, and love. God, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. King Jehoshaphat turned into courage to walk out into the battlefield and see them being one. Uh, Sarah and Abraham had their children. So it's okay to have questions, but I want to encourage us. The laughable how is what gives God glory. So I want to encourage you to stand strong and turn those questions into faith. Because the laughable how is what gives God glory. And the second thing, I think it's the obvious one that we all learn from the Sarah and Abraham stories, that it's never too late. I love that um, God, again, it, it's almost laughable as well. It, 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 he doesn't just work out when it's almost too late. He saves Jonah from the whale after he's been eaten by the whale. He, he, he gives Sarah a child after Sarah can't have children. It's never too late with God. I wanted to share a story. I, um, I played footy when I was growing up. And my dad, we, when we were born, me and my brother, we were born, we lived in housing. And my, my dad worked really, really hard so that we had a life that, that wasn't like that. But he worked heaps of jobs, multiple jobs, ran businesses on the side. And so when we were really young, we didn't see my dad a whole heap. And I, when I was about 13 years old, it was the first year I could make rep footy. And my brother had made rep footy and it opened up this world that my dad loved and was a part of. And so I really wanted to make, also I loved playing footy, but it was special to have a bit of time with my dad. And because he valued footy, I, I desperately wanted to make rep team. I remember I was... 12 turning 13 and we were training I was with Campbelltown City Kangaroos and they said oh we're going to list after training there'll be a list of everyone at this club who's made the rep team so I trained hard and then after training I come back to the list and I see the list and my name wasn't on the list and my my heart dropped I was gutted and I walked over to my dad hopped in the car and dad said son did you make the team I said no I didn't I remember sitting there and I just 
felt a conviction from God. I went, God, you're going to have the last say. And I, I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know if I was expecting God to say audibly, yep, you didn't make the team. I don't know what I was expecting, but I just had this conviction. I was sitting there and went, you know what, God, I'm not going to let a piece of paper have the last say. I'm going to let you have it. I was sitting there in the back seat, 12 years old, just praying, God, you have the last say. You're in control. You're on the throne. My dad gets a phone call. The year before, I'd played at a different club, and they'd actually sent the list to my old club, and my name was on the list. And my dad turns around and goes, Luke, you actually made the team. And as excited as I was that I made the team, I was like, Dad, you have no idea what just happened. I was just praying that after I'd been told I wasn't in the team, I was sitting there praying, no, God, it's not too late. You're in control. I'm like, God, it was incredible, this awesome moment that I had with God where he just showed me, hey, it's never too late. Even when the list says you're not on the team, it's never too late. So when we're holding on to promises, no matter how laughable the how, no matter how late it is, I want to encourage you to hold on to God's promises. And the third thing, the last one, we've got to let go to let God. I'm sure you know this song, go, let go and let God. I told Brian I would twerk while singing that, but I won't do that. So uh, Abraham and Sarah, they were faithful. I mean, Abraham chopped off a pretty sensitive bit to show his faithfulness. They were faithful people. Sarah and Abraham were faithful people. But after 10 years, when they tried to make the promise happen in their own strength and Ishmael was born, it was in their own strength. And I want to bring us to Genesis 17, verse 18. And it says, must be the wrong, Genesis 17, verse 18 is where Abraham makes a plea to God, can you include Ishmael in the promise? Can you include Ishmael in the covenant? Now, I think there's definitely an element of this where it's just a father who loves his son and he's trying to care for his son. And to give that more context, uh, when a child was born of a slave, if you then had a second child that was born free, uh, the slave child would then become in their status a slave and the free child would then become the son that inherits everything. So it was also not just a, a son that wouldn't receive all the promises of the promised child, but also that he would return to a position of a slave in a sense if Sarah and Abraham were to have a child. So there's definitely an element of a, of a father looking after his son, but there's also, I think, a a humanly response in that as well. I think there's a human desire there and a desire to hold on to their way, hold on to what they had tried to achieve the promise. They still, hadn't, they still didn't have Sarah. Uh, sorry, Sarah still hadn't had a child. So there's still a promise that they've got to hold on to. But here's Ishmael in the flesh. There's no more having to hold on to a promise, but hey, God, can you, can you establish this promise through Ishmael? We already have him here. We've already made this happen. Can, instead of holding and waiting out for this miracle, this element of trying to hold on to what they've made in their own strength to deliver the promise. And I think we do that in our lives too. I think we can get so fixed on us trying to, what, what we've created in our own strength and what we can do to find success, to, to help our family, to do life. We do things in our own strength, and sometimes I think we want to hold on to what we've got, whether it be our income, job security, or, or whatever it is, even with our tithes, we can want to hold on to what we've got. Oh, God, but you can bless me through this, and I could make it more. 
We try and hold on to what we've got rather than letting go and letting God. So if they had to hold on to Ishmael, they would have missed out on the promise of Isaac. And God graciously includes Ishmael and says, don't worry, I'll still bless Ishmael. Ishmael will still be a part of it. But I think there was something deeper there, that desire to hold on to what they've mustered in their own strength rather than still wait in the promise. So I want to encourage us this morning of those three things. When we're holding on to the promise, one, no matter how laughable the how, no matter how laughable it may seem, it gives God glory. And that's the way he shows up. I've noticed that in my life. Two, it's never too late. It's never too late. God exists outside of time. So late doesn't exist to him. Time is a concept that God lives outside of. So it's never too late. And last, when we hold on to what we've tried to create, we can limit God. Let's let go and let God. Let's trust God with his promises and allow him to come through. Is that cool? I'm going to pray um, and then we'll go on to what's next. Dear God, thank you for... Uh, us able to come here in the midst of everything, be able to have church like this together and have muffins and coffee. Uh, thanks so much for this, this opportunity to be together, to catch up, to hang out as iron sharpens iron, God. I pray that you help us to sharpen each other as we hang out and do community and life together. I mean, God, we thank you for the word. Thank you for Phoebe's word this morning. Um, thank you for worshiping you, being able to come and sing songs to you. Thank you so much, God, for the opportunity to do this. And I pray that you bless your people, everyone in here, Lord God, they experience your love. That this week that we're able to be more in tune to your spirit, to be able to be led by your spirit, to be convicted and led by your word into what you have us uh, for us, Lord God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au. And thanks again for listening.